Hello, hello, hello. Well, well, well. Welcome back to the Fab Five. This is your co-host, Shoeless Atom Danger. Uh, with me, as always, is my cohort through life, Beetle Ed. Beetle Ed, how are you doing? I'm good, Adam Danger. How are you this day? I'm doing very, very well. I uh, uh, Just hanging out, thinking about music, talking about the Beatles. What more can I want out of life? What more can I want out of a quarantine life? Nothing more. Well, I mean, Lest I, you be I, a greedy man. <laughs> well, I can be at times, but not when it comes to this, not when it comes to the simple pleasures. Uh, today's show is kind of interesting, a really, really interesting topic that Beetle Ed threw at me. The topic we're going to discuss are the Fab Five Beetle looks. Is that correct? That is correct. We can only hope that we have the same understanding of what that means. <laughs> well, it doesn't really matter. We may have very different lists, as usual. Yeah, I'm thinking the Beatles looks. I was thinking, you know, let's keep it light this week. You know, something, even though we'll probably ramble just as much as ever. But I feel like one cannot talk about the Beatles and not talk about the looks. Because the Beatles, you know, everybody always talks about the Beatles myth and the Beatles legend, Beatles lore. They say, can you believe that this band was only together for like 10 years or whatever? And it seems like they spend so, they spend multiple lives and just, I don't know. They, they just, they made 10 years seem like an eternity, especially... I guess when you're of our generation and you look back on it and you don't have that, um, you didn't live it over a 10 year period. It just seems so epic. And I think a lot of that has to do with not just how they changed musically, but how their appearances changed because they were always, they were going through these like radical creative transformations, spiritual transformations. And these, um, sort of, uh, what do you say? These these landmark uh, moments in their career are often noted by these different iconic uh, looks that they had. And I know that this very thing had a profound effect on me, like everything else about the Beatles, where in my life, in trying to be like a Beatle in my own little way, I've always been mixing up my looks and I've always been trying to pull off the, you know, John, John Lennon thing even though granny glasses just don't work with my face maybe it's my nose maybe i need the hooked john lennon nose but beatles looks yes beatles looks are something that i've spent much time thinking about so i thought uh would be good content for a list i i agree i i'm right there with you i think we have the general understanding uh i agree with you from the top that again not only were the Beatles so influential in terms of music, in terms of being celebrities, in terms of being artists, in terms of being uh, power brokers, right? Like a whole generation, the biggest generation we've ever seen in mankind, right? Look to these four people as, as uh, guides, right? And, and messengers of peace, love. And so it wasn't just, you know, the music, it wasn't just the movies, but it was their look. It was a bit of their fashion. It was a, bit of their thinking and so hopefully i think you and i are going to discuss just kind of these these some of them were trends some of them were just different looks some of them were just they were all iconic in their own way and they all tell a story about where the beatles were and how that kind of relates to uh the general public then and now i would say yes and i i will also say i wanted to say that you know i feel like it's almost a cliche or a trope of rock music or music in general or just for creative people to signify that they have undergone some great spiritual metaphysical maturation or evolution by going away for a time leaving the public eye and then being sure that when you come back you've grown your hair long and you've got a beard and then everyone's like, oh my gosh, you know, it has the effect of making it seem like you've gone to the mountaintop and you've come back down with some special wisdom that you're about to share with everybody. Or you do the reverse, you disappear with a beard, you come back clean shaven, and it, it, you know, it just, it gives the impression that great change has happened and great change is yet to come. And I feel like 
the Beatles were really pioneers of that. Um, I guess we'll outline that with our respective lists. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm ready to get started. Uh, would you like to go first with your number five look? I don't know. Should we flip a coin? <laughs> Heads or tails? Uh, tails never fails. Uh, it, it was tails. You first. All right. Uh, well, I'll get started here with my number five look. Uh, I started with early Beatles in Hamburg. And we're talking like 1961, 1962. Uh, for a lot of folks that, that casually know about the Beatles, before they really hit it big, before they were the mop tops and suits and beetle boots, uh, they were just leather-clad ruffians on the streets of Hamburg, Germany, playing rock and roll all day and all night. And I think it's an important look, and I think it's important to always keep this in mind when you're thinking about the history of the Beatles, is that they were a rock and roll group in the early 60s. Uh, by, by that time, rock and roll in the United States had kind of come and gone. Elvis was already in the Army, right? Uh, uh, Chuck Berry was getting in trouble. Surprise, surprise. Uh, you know, I think Little Richard at the time gave up playing rock and roll and said, you know, he was going to turn his life to the Lord. And, and, you know, I think he threw away all his jewelry in the river. Right. He didn't he didn't need that. So at the time, rock and roll uh, stateside was, you know, kind of passe. We were kind of getting back to maybe more teen idols and, uh, you know, guys that were singing men and women that were just singing uh, massive produced songs. Right. So. When you're thinking about the Beatles playing rock and roll, it was almost like, hey, that was five years ago. I don't know why you guys are still hanging on to this. And even in England, you know, you had Skiffle and you had some rock groups, but they weren't really big, right? Rock was just kind of like, oh, that's for Luddites or what have you. So the fact that uh, when you think of the Beatles getting started, that they were just kind of hanging on to something that was already really passe. And uh, and you look, you see this one, these photos of the Beatles and Hamburg, and they're wearing leather jackets. They don't have their Beatle haircuts yet. They kind of have these like Elvis style, uh, uh, you know, quiffs, right? And and uh, boots, right? And the stories of them being on amphetamines and playing these clubs for like 10, 12 hours a night. I think it's very, very important to the Beatle lore and to Beatle myth and to understanding how do they become such a good group? How do they become so uh simpatico and they're playing and their music i think this is also when people talk about the uh malcolm gladwell Ten Thousand hours uh, theory that the beatles played these ten thousand hours the first couple of years in in germany uh just over and over and over again the repetition getting to know each other knowing how to fill time knowing how to uh you know be a presence on stage and be with each other and be kind of in a tight tight group uh so you look at this this look where they're scruffy and they're tough and they're mean, and it really kind of betrays the look that they're going to uh, debut, you know, on the national stage, on the world stage of clean cut, friendly, lovable, the lovable lads, right? Uh, and I think it's always important to realize that, you know, when the Stones come and the animals, the British invasion, everyone says, oh, you know, the Beatles are, are sweet boys, but these are rock stars, right? These are the tough guys and getting into trouble. And someone like John Lennon and I think Paul McCartney think, whoa, 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 we were doing this way before, uh, way before the Stones came along and were such rebels. And, and, um, and that leads me to something I, I cherish, this interview from, I believe, like December 6th, 1980, that John Lennon does. And they're asking him about the Sex Pistols. You know, what did you think about the Sex Pistols? And he thought, well, it was fine because they weren't doing anything we weren't doing in Hamburg, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, we were the ones wearing leather and running around on stage and uh, getting drunk and peeing and, uh, and you know, being clowns and hitting each other. Like, we were doing that, but, you know, we did we cleaned up our act later to be suitable for audiences. because uh, We sold, you know, a lot of records. The, the Sex Pistols really didn't make a lot of money. You know, it was a cool, fashionable thing. And, oh, look, we're, you know, uh, insurrectionists and it's, it's all kinds of anarchy. But he goes, we were doing that 20 years ago. But it just, you know, uh, we got over that kind of scene. And so uh, I think it's always important to keep in mind that these guys had real rock roots. They had, uh, they were just kind of scruffy lads uh, that just built themselves into, you know, the greatest band of all time. Yeah, I figured you were going to go with the Hamburg days. I felt like you always had a particular appreciation for that look. 
in that time when they still had the rosy cheeks. Yeah. Now, what would somebody, what would, so this is kind of the look that is um, immortalized in those photographs by, um, who is it, Astrid? Yeah, uh, Daily Departed Astrid. Right. Oh, yeah, she just passed away about a month ago or something, is that right? That's right, and so we should take some time here on our, our show here to uh, uh, bid a fond farewell to Astrid. Uh, you know, just and just kind of a side note, you know, she was such a huge influence on the Beatles and their time in Hamburg. I think she was the first one to give them the Hamlet haircut, right, which known became known as the Beatle cut. And a lot of her mm-hmm. expressionist photos using a lot of black and white, that became a lot of the um, the motifs, right, for with the Beatles, those early Beatles black and white looks. Uh, so, you know, she was so instrumental to how the Beatles as a concept and how they began to understand who they who they were and how to present themselves. She was highly instrumental. Uh, if you read any Beatle book, any Beatle history, you'll just, you know, fall in love with her because she's such a great character. And uh, in, like I said, like you just said, about a month ago, she just passed away. But if you really into the Beatles, just take a look at some of her artwork and see, and then you can draw again a parallel between the artwork that she was doing, the photos in 61 to, you know, with the Beatles in late 63, early 64. And she was the girlfriend of uh, Stu, Stu Sutcliffe, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, it was, I guess, who were the existentialists? Um, Klaus? Klaus Bormann. Mm-hmm. And then there was a third guy that had, uh, that I think he was initially dating Astrid, or at least, you know, they were a couple. And uh, Klaus, I think, tells a story of, you know, he was with them. Like, they were his roommates and his pals, and he had a fight. And he's like, oh, I'm out of here. So then he just is walking along the streets and he hears like this cacophonous sound and it's the Beatles. And he just, it something happened. There was like a Paul on the road to Damascus kind of moment where the, the light turned on. And then he came back and goes, I know we were fighting. Look, just listen to me. Listen to me. Come down to this club. You won't believe what's happening. And that's how they kind of became involved with the Beatles. Wow. Yeah. I remember hearing that story. What a beautiful story. <laughs> I was in Hamburg once and I went to, I think, one of the clubs that the Beatles used to play that's still standing. I think it was called the Indra. Right. It's a really weird scene there in Hamburg uh, near the Ripabon. Ooh, it was hard to picture. It was par- hard to picture it all going down. But yes, I feel like I've seen you emulate a little bit of that early Beatles Hamburg style. Uh, over the years, something similar from a similar period, but I chose uh, my number five Beatle look is Ringo Starr when he was a member of the band Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Nice, nice. So if you Google Ringo, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, um, you'll see Ringo as he was uh, right before he dropped the Hurricanes and joined up with the Beatles, and the rest, as they say, is history. But he had this really cool look. He had a bit of that kind of quaff. It was almost like like when you do your hair up, like it's like a tornado or like a typhoon that's like spilling over yeah. the front of your head. I don't know yeah. how you do that. And then he had like a very young man's kind of like chin-strap beard with a thin mustache, and he has this great... Uh, if you Google it, you'll see an image. There's one of him... Uh, playing guitar, interestingly enough, really rocking out. And he's got this great streak of um, white hair on his temple. And apparently, you'll notice later, you know, a few years into the Beatles, it seems like his left eyebrow up and disappears. And I guess some people thought that that was due to maybe some kind of scar, some injury he'd suffered. I think there's uh, maybe an apocryphal tale of John Lennon throwing a tambourine at his face on stage but more people I saw in my research are adamant that it's just more of that early graying that Ringo had and that he actually still has an eyebrow but it's gone white and all but disappeared but I'd say Ringo probably never looked as fly as he did before he joined the Beatles when he was the drummer for Rory Storm. 
That's that's funny you say that because whenever you look at those photos and you see him, he just looks so much older. I like I know he was the eldest Beatle, but he looks like he's got years on like John and Paul at the time. They still John still kind of has like baby fat and and even Paul, right? Like Paul's still just like a baby face guy. Not to mention George Harrison, but you would they show photos of, of when Ringo would sit in with the Beatles, right? Like they would play twelve bar blues or something. He even though he has a chin strap beard, he just looks older, right? He just looks like this is, you know, a man and these other guys are just young lads, uh, you know, in comparison. But I know exactly the look you're talking about. And again, yeah, it's got that just rock and roll, that old kind of Elvis, um, Gene Vincent kind of Eddie Cochran look, right? Like that haircut and and, and dress and stuff. So uh, I'm glad. I'm glad we're kind of simpatico there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I was looking at the pictures, it had the opposite effect where I was just like, wow, I couldn't believe so young, so, yeah, he's like a boy. He just looks so boyish and so young, and Lord, it was a long time ago. But anyhow, what is your number four? So with my number four look, I'm going to go to 1965. I'm going to the Rubber Soul era of the Beatles. I think... uh, a lot of people say that Rubber Soul is their, you know, favorite album. I feel like it's a lot of people's top Beatle album. And I when you just take a look at the cover of Rubber Soul, you just see, you still see the Beatles, but I think in a way they're just kind of transitioning to some sort of ethereal plane, right? Like it's it's a dreamy cover. Their hair and their clothes are just kind of uh, slightly askew. And I was thinking about it today. Like, this is the last album cover where the Beatles are all together and, like, looking straight ahead at the camera, right? Like, it's not some sort of, like, this is the last time you see the Beatles as, like, the Beatles and, like, these four boys. I feel like you get to Revolver and Onward and it becomes something bigger and it becomes bigger than the four individual components of it. Uh, But even then, in that dreamlike fashion and they're wearing, like, it looks like these kind of, like, sweaters and I think John's wearing almost like a suede jacket. Like, it's really cool. It's real bohemian. It's not yet psychedelic. It's not yet, you know, flashy colors and anything. Uh, but it's almost as if you're looking at astronauts right before they take off, right? Like, this is the photo before they leave and then before they come back. Um, but I think that's just such an iconic look because it does just encapsulate that era, of the, that turning point of the Beatles from being, from writing pop songs and um uh, love songs and little ballads here and there to really writing more introspective, more interesting work, challenging themes, challenging notions, uh, challenging what you could do with pop music. Uh, You know, I think that's why it's such an important album itself, but just the way it looked, the way it's delivered, I think kind of just gives you uh, an idea of what to expect. And and again, as a a signpost, like an iconic look for the Beatles is uh, that Rubber Soul uh, album cover. Well, that's good that we have a nod to the mop-top era of the Beatles. I guess that would be the tail end of it, but it is remarkable. Their their looks really don't change, I mean, in regards to their hairstyles and their clean-shaven faces. I mean, they were committed to that, you know, from what, like 1961, 62, something like that, all the way up to... 66, 66, 67. Yeah, they kept yeah. that a long time. Like the bowl cut slowly kind of like started creeping down their heads and became more of like a shaggy thing, which it's hard to even imagine it was like a pretty, you know, people who used to knock them. Everybody's every every teenager's dad in America would rag on them for their long hair, which is hard to imagine now that like a little shaggy bowl cut be considered long hair but for the time as i understand it was uh pretty radical and um yeah we would be remiss if we didn't uh include a mop top or two on our fab five list so good on you oh thank you tell me your number four okay number four let me think it's on my brain i didn't write it down (laughs) um number four this was one. This was one that I wasn't really thinking about until I started digging in, um, and then I was like, "Well, that's cool." So now I'll just go ahead and say, the top four of my Fab Five. These spots are all taken up by Paul and John, who were, I mean, John Lennon is the king 
of looks, you know, maybe in all of history, like who's had more iconic looks than John Lennon? And he was obviously very conscious and uh, deliberate about, I mean, very vain, obviously a very vain guy. And he was very conscious about changing, changing up his hairstyles and changing up his facial hair and all this stuff. Something he obviously gave a lot of thought to. And at number four, one of his uh, lesser known, sometimes overlooked looks is his, um, let's see, late 67, first half of 68, early 68, I think, mutton chop look. Ah, yes. Where yes. He's, got, he's got hair. It's not that, it's long, but it's not shoulder length. And um, he's got these massive, bushy mutton chops on his cheeks and he has started wearing uh you know granny glasses right he's got the granny glasses at this point and you can see this look this is this is how he appears in the brief cameo at the end of yellow submarine you can see him in his mutton chop glory and this was (laughs) the look he was sporting when they all went to india to uh hang out with the maharishi and um, so to be more specific, I'll just say his his India mutton chop look where he's got the kind of like Indian sort of style garb shirt, right, on, which right. I don't know what that would be called. He might even be wearing like a little necklace, a little spiritual necklace. And he's got a little bit of stubble going in these massive chops and these iconic granny glasses. I think this is a very one of his cooler looks just had to pay tribute to it. I don't I have like, that much to say about it other than it I looks feel like pretty he cool. has that look in uh, the Hey Bulldog video. So if you ever check out like Hey Bulldog that came out around that same time, you'll see the the glasses, you'll see the mutton chops and you'll see kind of a again, it's not like super long Jesus flowing hair, but it is you know, mm-hmm. shaggier. And I think I used to have a poster. You might remember this like in my dorm room where he's wearing that kind of like white coat, that Indian cut jacket and he's sitting like cross leg maybe with a guitar, right? And uh, and he's not. I don't think he's wearing his glasses, but I feel like I had a poster of that, and it's probably somewhere uh, in a garage or something like that. But I wouldn't have thought of that look, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Once you kind of start saying like the button chops and the hair, like it's that transition period from uh, you know Sergeant Pepper to the White Album, and then I feel like after the White Album, that's when he gets kind of the long hair. I think that's when the heroin kicks in, honestly, and he just looks really sick. Uh, well, I don't know if you're yeah. going to jump into that later, but, uh, no. but yeah, this is a, uh, yeah, I, I definitely know what you're talking about. Almost like if you put on a top hat or something, he'd look like a Charles Dickens kind of like character, which is indeed, kind of indeed. Funky, but uh, no, I, I, I'm right there with you. That's a, that's a good pick for you, number four. I told my girlfriend that we were, this was my great idea for our show. And she was like, well, how are people going to know? How are people going to know what you're talking about? She was like, are you going to tell them to Google it? And I was like, I guess. So if you want to see this one, if you Google John Lennon in India, you'll see what I'm talking about. My number three look, um, I just put down Sergeant Pepper. And I put down Sergeant Pepper because not just like the cover, but any of the, the uh, photos that we have of the Beatles in their costumes, you know, I started thinking to myself, you know, Sergeant Pepper is their apex in terms of creativity, in terms of music, in terms of uh, what uh, conceptually what a band could do, and then what their look was. This is almost an invincible look, right? It's so peerless, like bright colors, and they're wearing these weird uh, psychedelic, um, you know, old kind of Salvation Army band outfits, but they're, you know, you know this look from anywhere. Like if you had someone even doing a parody, you knew that, even without like popular understanding, like oh, that has something to do with Sgt. Pepper. That's going to do with the Beatles. It's that iconic, and it made that sort of statement. And uh, I was thinking too, in a weird way, it makes me think of like you know this. If they were superheroes, this would be their costume, right? Like, this would be the bright colored costume that uh, presents just this invincible facade, right? That's why I think part of why um, just some of the the colors for Sgt. Pepper just stay with us to this day why it's so uh, shocking why it's so just it grabs your attention uh but they're it's not like they're wearing like baggy clothes it's not like they're wearing suits 
it's almost funny because in the Pepper uh, album cover, you see them in their like red and green, uh, you know, suits. And then you have like wax figures of the Beatles in their like 1964, 1963 suits, like standing next to them, almost showing like, this is what we used to be. And I don't know, like if it was like in a weird way, like those wax figures, those are dead. Like that's what we used to be. And we've not been that. And, and that was something new. And, uh, you know, in our love of the Beatles, one of the things that you and I, Beatlehead, talk about is the idea for Sgt. Pepper was Paul's idea of, like, what if we just didn't have to be the Beatles? What if we could do something that didn't have the expectations of a Beatle record? What if we could break that uh, you know, cycle? And I don't know if they, it was a cool concept. And I think they started that way, but eventually it just became, you know, Beatle album. But I think you kind of see that with that look is that, like, we've become so big that we have to be somebody else in order to express ourselves because the expectations and what people want and what, you know, businesses want and what uh, new fans, what old fans want, like it's, it's getting so, so difficult that uh, we have to do something almost incognito. And like I said, this look is just so iconic that for, I think, a century, we can see guys in those kinds of like pepper outfits that, uh, it'll take us right back to 1967, like that one point in time. And it all kind of just encapsulates and revolves around from that era. Yeah. It's wild. It's like they could do no wrong. And it's just, what are the chances that the greatest band of all time would have like the greatest album cover of all time and the greatest costume suits of all time. It's amazing. And it's so iconic that it's like it can't even be imitated, which is true of, I mean, so many things about the Beatles. It's it's it cannot be replicated. And maybe it's the same reason that Beatles cover songs so often fall flat, because it's just too big. It's just too big to imitate. I mean, you think about how uh, the clash with London calling had kind of sort of ripped off or paid homage to an iconic Elvis cover. I don't know yeah, what the name of Elvis. Elvis. Yeah. Can you imagine a band like dressing up in Sgt. Pepper suits and like doing the whole, I mean, I'm sure some people have tried, but yeah, I mean, it's just, and certainly by some interpretation, the Sgt. Pepper, the four of them standing in those suits is certainly the most iconic uh, sort of fashion statement that the Beatles ever made I would say too on that note you know check out like uh, for comparison Satanic Majesty's Service right like that's mm. the Rolling Stones I think not really trying to imitate it but maybe taking the piss and silly and, and uh, you know just how pompous it looks right and it just comes off even then like it's not really mocking it just comes off as really bad self-parody like don't even try to make fun of the Beatles don't even try to approach this level of uh, you know because this is like a peerless artistic statement and you trying to make fun of it only makes you look worse for it right like it was it already become so sacrosanct and I think it's forgotten like that record's okay that those kind of late 60s Stones records before like Let It Bleed they have some good songs but they're you know they're nowhere near in the even same artistic realm as, you know, Pepper, or, um, uh, Magical Mystery Tour or anything. So I, I think, I feel like they kind of get burned for that. You look at it and you're like, oh, this is, this is kind of silly. And I think even Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, like they put out a record in 68 and they were trying to imitate the Sgt. Pepper, like with just all the colors, the primary colors and look cool. But again, trying to turn it on its head, I think it'd be a little more cynical about it. Uh, and who talks about that, right? Like we talk about Frank Zappa from time to time, or and if you like music and you look kind of like far out stuff, but I don't know if anyone really talks about like Mothers of Invention as being like, oh, what a what the high water mark of Frank Zappa's career, right? Yeah, I mean, and Let It Bleed and Her Satanic Majesty's Service, so you got two albums right there that are like directly, blatantly referencing, uh, you know responses to well they are responding to works of the beatles i don't know maybe there are more let it bleed being a play on let it be her satanic majesty's service 
like the whole thing from the music to the look to the artwork being like something, some kind of response to Sgt. Pepper, whether it's taking the piss or trying to maybe grab cash some in. of that magic, you know, cash yeah. in on some of that uh, cultural wellspring that they discovered. I mean, are there any other Rolling Stones such? Well, I was, uh, I was thinking to myself, I think they asked Ringo because the Stones put out a record in 65 called Aftermath, right? And they go, hmm. Rico, what's the name of your new Beatle record going to be? And he goes, After Geography. Uh, and I always love that joke. Uh, I just thought, oh my God. And I think that they were talking about Revolver in 66. Like, it, and he goes, it's going to be called After Geography. So, hmm. and, but I think in a, in a nice way, like in a way of, of like influencing other artists, you look at something from Donovan, like Sunshine Superman, like he being friends with the Beatles and like, yeah, this is great, man rock and roll psychedelic what if i did a song about atlantis right like he's one that kind of takes it to the natural progression where it becomes whimsical and it becomes silly i like it you know i think it's it's pretty cool or even harry nielsen uh what was it pandemonium shadow shadow show ballet right like long titles that are really uh conceptual and and really cool and, and really far out uh you see that right you kind of see that from from bands and uh, it becomes more of a period, a time and place. But for the Beatles, I don't think they they don't get hung up of just being like, well, this is you know summer of '67. This is just a time and place. Like it's a it's a record and it's a look and it's a feeling that is just as true today as it was back then. If so I'm true, sense. and you may. Now tell me your number three, there, friend. Okay, coming in at number three, we have Paul McCartney. Let it be. Uh -huh. Paul McCartney circa Let It Be. Um, as uh, as documented on the cover of the album Let It Be and in the documentary film um, and in the upcoming recut of the documentary film coming to theaters uh, this September or something like that. And this was when the normally very clean-cut Paul McCartney, I mean, you know, prior to this, he'd never, even when the other guys had gone long with their hair and bushy with their beards or whatever, Paul had always uh, kept a, pretty much buttoned up, as was his nature. And um, I think maybe in Let It during Let It Be, this was not so long after his breakup with... Jane Asher, his very long time, very serious girlfriend to whom he was engaged for a time. So it's quite possible that his letting his hair grow out and letting his beard grow out uh, was some kind of way of, I don't know, coping or, um, let's see, what's, this, what's the word I'm thinking? Demarcating this break in his life, but uh, this was another look that I used to, that I just, I thought it was so cool with the, with the really big uh, black beard and the long black hair. And then he's, he's wearing like a, in, in the Let It Be, uh, a lot of the footage of that, he's wearing like a, like a dinner jacket or like a black suit, something like yeah. that. I think that's how he appears on the rooftop is another sort of famous instance of this look. And when I was a teenager, you know, I always, I, I was just, I really wanted, if I couldn't do the John Lennon middle part granny glasses, I thought maybe I can, maybe I can pull off the Paul McCartney Let It Be look. And I haven't gotten there quite yet, but I remember thinking as a teen, it looked so sort of like uh, regal to me in a way and now you look at it and he does just he seems very unkempt <laughs> i guess is the way a lot of people saw it at the time but it's cool man he's always like sweeping his hair out of his eyes right like in let it be he sits down and he's got this this black beard and it's almost like a fuzzy beard right it's not like a long whiskers or anything it's almost maybe curly and i just i always feel like he's sitting down and just kind of like wiping the hair from his face and he has maybe a three quarters cut like shirt on and he's talking to George or whatever. I always felt like he looked kind of husky 
Like he had been drinking. He was still drinking at the time and just mm-hmm. like putting putting the bottles of wine away. I think he starts dating Linda Eastman at this time. And I feel like that look goes from, let's say, 69 to 71, 72. Some of those first Wings albums, you'll see a picture of him and Linda. And I think you know the picture I'm talking about. And he has like that maybe jacket with some wool, right? And it's got the little like wool lapel. And he's holding yeah, her yeah. they're on the farm or whatever. Uh, so I feel like he, he does kind of grow that that beard. Uh, but it is kind of it's kind of weird that it took, you know, until the late 60s that he finally just kind of let himself be a little more free. And I think that comes from Paul always being so measured. I think that's what you were talking about earlier. He was, everything was measured with how he looked, how he was sweet to the media, how he was always very accommodating. He wasn't the one to put out real, you know, um, raconteur-like statements. He was always, you know, he was always good cop, right? He was always nice and measured. So even when he kind of gets like uh, her suit, as it were, it's kind of like, oh, that's crazy. And then it's funny, though. I feel like by the mid-70s, boom, it gets cut again. He has long hair for the wings area, wings over America or whatever. But you really don't see that beard, I don't think, ever again. At least I can't. I can't. I no, can't think yeah, I don't think so. I don't think you do. Yeah, but maybe think- at the time he was feeling, because, you know, there is this common sort of misconception that John Lennon was always the experimental and avant-garde aficionado of the Beatles when in fact it was Paul McCartney who took an interest in experimental music and art before John Lennon ever really did and you know they always had this competition going so maybe around the late 60s towards the end of their Beatles career John Lennon was very much gaining the reputation for being this very mystical spiritual far out there dude and maybe Maybe Paul McCartney was like, you know what, I got to pull out all the stops to compete with this guy and seem a little dark and mysterious myself. So maybe he let it all go at that point. That's that's interesting. I, I kind of want to do a sidebar here. I want to ask your opinion. I listened to this podcast, I think it was Steve Hyden and this other person. It's called Rivalries. And they talk about rock and roll rivalries. And they did um, John versus Paul throughout their career. And one of the one of the theories that they postulated, and I don't know how I feel about it, so I want to get your opinion, is they feel that from the early 60s up until Pepper, the band is John's band. John is in charge of the band, and they play you know, well-crafted songs, good pop songs, things are pretty cool. But from 67 to 70, it becomes Paul's band, and Paul is really the one that's more, and their opinion, is the one that's more experimental. He's the one that's going to be going to these like free jazz concerts and like wanting to experiment with weird sounds and and weird kind of cadences and all kinds of things. And that, um, you know, Paul is the one that when he's in charge of the Beatles, that's how you get everything from Pepper to the White Album to uh, Abbey Road. And I always, they struck me kind of funny because I always felt like John was the weirder one, right? And you listen to like his stuff with Yoko and, and Plastic Ono Band and, you know, all the screaming and shrieking and stuff and weird guitar licks and stuff. But could the argument be made that Paul musically was the more adventurous, uh, adventurous one? He was kind of the one that was pushing the Beatles in an adventurous direction uh, up until Abbey Road. I wanted to get your opinion. Yeah, well, I listened, you know, to that audiobook of "You Never Give Me Your Money," which was so illuminating, uh, for better or worse. It really painted kind of an uglier picture of that whole period and just the Beatles in general than I had ever gotten from the officially sanctioned sources. And yeah, I mean, Paul McCartney, it's kind of indisputable that he was more experimental leaning. I think he certainly had a greater interest in the art world and he used to run in those circles because of his girlfriend, Jane Asher, and all the connections that that relationship afforded him in London high society. And plus the other guys had kind of screwed off to the countryside and Paul was for a time the only one left living in London. And so I think that was exposing him to a lot of out there ideas. And, you know, he was of course the one who first took an interest in tape loops. um, And during the recording of Revolver, he was the one that sent everybody home with like a homework assignment to bring in their own tape loops, which were then used on the uh, on Tomorrow Never Knows. 
And yeah, when John Lennon, um, I think he felt, I think anything that the other one did well or had an affinity for, the other one felt a lacking of, and therefore a competitive drive to compensate for that. And so I think when John met Yoko, she brought him all this art world, experimental avant-garde cred, and he just dove headlong into that. And suddenly he became, you know, he started getting lost in these crazy music experiments. Like what's the new Mary Jane and revolution number nine, which was uh, Yoko and John and George did together um, at Abbey road studios. Uh, And I think, I think I read that Paul McCartney was very upset and sad to be left out of that creating revolution number nine, because that was his bag originally, as they say at the time. You know, and listening to it, I feel like, let's say had the Beatles gone on, I feel this era of Paul McCartney has way more in common with, say, like Pink Floyd, right? Like early 70s Pink Floyd, where it's great musicianship, but they're going to spend hours and hours and thousands and thousands of dollars trying to get, uh, you know, the right, like, backward sheet vocal for a song. Yes. And it's going to be pretentious as hell. And I know I love Pink Floyd and I could get down to that, but I can understand people are like, oh, that, you know, just play the song. Like, is it a good song or not? I don't want to have to hear. I'm like, no, we need to do it again. So it becomes almost like so extravagant, which in a way kind of that's music in the 70s as well. Like you just put so much money and then you can also put drugs in the equation. Something like Fleetwood Mac, which I love Fleetwood Mac, but a record like Tusk, I think you could just say, oh, they're just with a microphone taped to the floor going, okay, how does that sound? Am I getting the right in there? Uh, And I I think too, like by Abbey Road, Paul's songs, they are experimental, but they're super polished, like Maxwell Silverhammer. It's an okay song, right? But it's it's real, it's okay. It's just over-polished, it's over-produced, right? Um, Yes. And uh, and so, again, with John, I think they also say, like, hey, if it wasn't for Paul, these guys may have quit in 67 and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's such a pain in the ass. We can't go anywhere. Anytime we put something out, people just give a shit. And or if there are fans, they expect it to top what we just did, right? They expect us to top ourselves. And that's so you can't win either way, right? Like, it's either you're going to get, you know, cynical and, and the stones or someone to be like, oh, well, this, you're just trying to make money and this is a cheap ploy. Or the true believers are like, you can do no wrong. And it's going to get even better. You're going to solve all our problems for us. So I can understand them just being done with it. And Paul being like, now, now, guys, it's time to make this record. And I've got some ideas. and I've got some homework for you guys. And it's like, you know, and you're, they're 27 and 28. And they're the four of the most popular people in the history of the earth. And it's like, I have this guy telling me I have to do something? I'm like, Jesus Christ. But, you know, they still had to do it, right? They still had to kind of keep the the money train going and so i know this is kind of a big tangent and stuff but i felt like that you know i i wanted to ask you that question I, it, it kind of seems maybe we're in agreement maybe i should consider that paul was musically maybe a little more experimental and wanted to do things uh, a little more way out where john is you know as a songwriter i'm gonna write a good pop song it's it'll be funky but you know i'll i'll at the end of the day it'll be a really good piece of uh songwriting yeah, I think John was lyrically experimental, but Paul probably takes the crown for being the musically experimental guy. But we must be rambling because <laughs> I don't even remember what number we're on. I think we're on number two. I think it's my Who's number, number two? two. The new oh, okay. number two. The new number two. And I, that we're going to call back when you said, you know, kind of the guru and spiritual one. My number two look is John Lennon bed piece. So I'm thinking 1969, John Lennon in bed with Yoko Ono protesting uh, the plight of the world at that time. And uh, thinking about it now, you know, in the time, day and time we're living in and thinking about bed peace and bagism and all kinds of stuff. You know, when you look at these photos of John Lennon, you know, he's got the long, now he has a long shoulder length hair. Now he has the long, you know, a cobbler's beard, right? He just looks like, uh, he, he just looks like he's, been in a cave for forever, but he's still really thin. Uh, you know, he's got well manicured nails. 
uh, and he's giving you can all see kinds his of, nails. Well, like because they took all kinds of photos, right? And let's go back to bed piece in Toronto, I believe. Does he have uh, a period where he doesn't have manicured nails? I feel like there's probably an early '68 or whatever. Um, Never noticed his nails. So this is big bushy beard. This is big linen. bushy beard linen. Grandma's ballad of John and Yoko linen. This is like their wedding photos. Linen. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. And this is the linen. This is the iconic linen that Apple, uh, you know, the computer company uses to say, like, think differently, man. And it's a picture of him, like, giving a peace sign or something. I remember being in a high school and, like, not even high school, middle school and having that poster. I don't know why Apple, and it wasn't even Apple, it was like Macintosh computers had given us this poster of John Lennon. It was like, think differently. And, you know, it's supposed to inspire you to, like, here's a rebel, man. But really, it's a shameless cash grab. Like, they're just using his his photo. But the feelings that I think, as fans, we have, um, it's kind of complicated because when you know the real story about John Lennon and how he acted, you know, he wasn't this groovy, peace-loving peacenik all the time. There was also a side of, you know, misogyny and insecurity that he's, he was very open about. He was very vocal about having to come to terms with them. But uh, when you want to talk about, you know, uh, give peace a chance, John Lennon. You always think of that just kind of Jesus hair, granny glasses, a big bushy beard, and sitting in bed talking about peace and and protesting the war in Vietnam. And I think about it even in our day and time, thinking about you know protesting for huge social change. He understood that if he did something that was just wacky and out there, people are going to want to report on it. And if they're going to report on it, they had to include that it was a supposed peace protest. It was about peace, 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 peace. It was all a, a marketing gimmick. And he understood that he could do that. So when Al Cap comes in and he's like, don't you think you could do something more than just sitting in bed all day eating three, three square meals a day? How can you, you know, you're so phony. You're so, uh, you know, this is such a crock of shit. He's like, yes, but you, Al Cap, are here in front of, you know, all these these reporters from around the world and cameras and stuff. And it's going to say Al Cap talks to John Lennon supposedly about peace. And so, again, getting peace out there. And so whether it's bagism, sending the acorns, I mean, all kinds of nutty ideas. But, again, it was to spread the word about peace and push this agenda about peace. Whereas, you know, people were protesting in the streets. People were dying in the streets. People And people were writing little, he would call them half-witted manifestos about uh, you know, we should do this. The status quo is this, this, and this. And he goes, and nobody's going to read that. You know, it's a futile gesture. No, you're not changing the world by doing what everyone else has done and giving kind of your opinion. You can change the world by doing something that shocks people out of their regular routine and says, okay, wait, why, why are you doing this? Peace, peace for what? Peace, peace how? What is peace? You know, what are you against? And it lets people's defenses come down because it's, uh, you know, ridiculous, but at the same time, it's like, okay, if your defenses come down, and then you can have an actual conversation about peace, uh, peace, 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 then, you know, then the message is getting across, and I think that's one of the just kind of just genius things he and Yoko uh, could do, because we're still talking about it today on this little podcast. Yeah, that w I remember another thing from that audio book was the sort of the way they painted it, because John Lennon is thought of as this like activist for peace, but it seems like the reality is more that that was just like a very kind of brief uh, period of his life. I guess not that brief, considering his life was not that long, but um, it was something that he cared about very intensely for that uh, for that sort of period at the beginning of his relationship with Yoko Ono, and then after that was just more of like a on again off again hobby. But you certainly can't knock the effort and certainly he did a lot to raise awareness for the cause of peace Give i'm for peace, peace. Chance. are you for peace i'm for bed peace hair peace all kinds of peace oh, and i'm good. also here to hear your number two iconic word. number two i don't know why i have to say it that way my number two is kind of a retread so i get we won't we won't harp on it too long but uh, my number two best favorite, I guess, most fab Beatles look is Paul McCartney's Sgt. Pepper era 
mustache. <laughs> Which, you know, I think is one of the most iconic Beatles looks for all the reasons that you mentioned. And, you know, something I appreciated is like, you know, Sergeant Pepper, as you were saying, became a sort of blueprint for psychedelia in a way um, that many people copied, whether in small ways or in very large ways, like the Rolling Stones, for example. But, you know, it is this blueprint for the psychedelic movement, psychedelic music, like psychedelic art. But at the same time, nothing is quite like it. And I think the, I think Paul McCartney's mustache really speaks to that because his little, you know, he's, he's pretty, he's got a pretty short cropped hairdo, you know, kind of like a, a shorter mop top with this little mustache and it looks very proper. And, you know, I think what it does is there's something about that that is out of step with what is now cliche and like stereotypical psychedelia, which is like big bushy hair and like tie dye and stuff like that, you know? So this looks so different from so many things that we categorize that we would put in the same box of psychedelia. And yet it is still somehow a psychedelic look just by virtue of being, you know, Sergeant Pepper. But I think what, what makes this look unique is what makes um, Paul McCartney very unique and what is it I think it it sort of symbolizes what he brings to the table to Sergeant Pepper I mean he brings a lot but he has this lifelong enduring love for the music of his childhood and the music of I guess his parents you know who were both I believe music lovers I think especially his father taught him a lot about music as a kid he played music right yeah, and dance I think hall music. yeah, dance hall music, right? And you see Paul McCartney; he's always bringing. He has such a nostalgia for, I guess you call it dance hall music. I don't know what to call it aside from like, I, all I can think is you know music from the twenties and the thirties. I see that mustache; it makes me think of that period when that sort of mustache would have been more commonplace to a young hip gentleman in some sort of Great Gatsby sort of sense, and. Um, yeah, you see him bringing it to the music, whether it's your mother should know, or it's honey pie, or when I'm 64, I guess, to some degree, I, um, there were probably other examples of these, uh, on Tim Heidecker's podcast, they were, they call these his grandma songs, songs for grandmas <laughs> to listen to. But I feel like all of that, all of that is, is wrapped up and infused into that tiny little mustache that he's got and um i did have a factoid that Ooh. i thought would add might as well sprinkle a fact fact or two in there for the audience but in my research today i learned that by paul mccartney's own admission what brought about uh the mustache you know because prior to that all the beatles the beatles had i don't think in all the 60s, up until Paul McCartney grew his mustache, I don't think any of the Beatles had appeared in any publicity materials with any facial hair. I think maybe, you know, during their off times, like when George went to India, before he went with the rest of the Beatles, he might have grown a mustache. But So this was, this was huge. This was a seismic facial hair event in Beatles history. And what happened was in 65, 66, um, Paul McCartney was zipping around in London on a, on a moped with a friend of his name of Tara something. I should have written this down. But <laughs> his friend was the actual, he was the, the heir. The Guinness heir? Uh, yes, the Guinness heir. Heir, who later died, I believe, in a car crash, and then uh, the one in the same who was referenced in the lyric of A Day in the Life. Blew his mind out in a car. Yeah. One in the same person. Anyways, they're scooting around on mopeds under the full moon or something, and Paul McCartney wipes out, and he talks about in detail the, the instant that felt like five minutes where he sees the pavement coming up at his face and is thinking about 
how unfortunate it is that he's about to smack his face on this pavement. But he chipped his front tooth and busted his lip open and busted his um, his forehead above his left eye, I think. And you can see this if you Google it. If you Google Paul McCartney moped accident, there's a uh, slightly sort of gory photo of his injuries. And apparently a doctor stitched him up right away and did a bit of a shoddy job of it. And so it's so obvious once you know, because you see all the pictures for pretty much the remainder of the 60s. And I guess up till now, if you just look, you can see on the left side of his mouth, his upper lip has like a little puffy kind of protrusion. And if you watch the video for Paperback Writer, um, you can see his lip scar um, and his chipped tooth, which he eventually got fixed. But by his own admission, he grew the mustache to cover up sort of how his lip was looking because he was a little self-conscious about it. And as he said, if he did something that the other guys liked, they tended to all do it as well. <laughs> so this ushered in the mustache era of Sergeant Pepper, which is pretty, pretty interesting. If it were for that moped accident, who knows what Sergeant Pepper would have looked like. Now, does like that moped accident and going the mustache and you know getting that that surgery? Does that also kind of feed into the Paul is dead myth of like? Yes, I think it does right, change. Yeah. Yes, I think the moped accident was pretty was crucial to the Paul is dead myth. We might not have ever had the myth; might have never gained traction if it wasn't for this sort of slight difference in his appearance, which is considerable when you know what you're looking for. You can you can see it in a lot of photos. Yeah. But anyways, what is your number one? My number one Fab Five Beetle look. Uh, I thought about this for a while, for the past couple of days, and I think you have to go to the Ed Sullivan appearance, uh, their first Ed Sullivan appearance, where the Beatles have just come to America. I think they're the the look of just like. The first Beatle haircuts that we just talked about earlier, how the American audience was like, uh, I think, you know, some of the reporters were like, are you going to get a haircut while you're here? And they're just like, oh, we just had one yesterday. That's no lie. And <laughs> the idea that they was like, oh, because I guess you think like Americans back in what, 63, going to 64, still had like crew cuts and stuff. Like you just right. didn't have, quote, long hair. But having the Beatle haircuts, the tight black Beatle suits, Beatle boots, uh, the whole... The whole look when they come to America just, I think, captures our national attention. And they've never let go. Like, they've never let go from that point, from that one show, that one appearance. Uh, you know, everything just looks so perfect. You know, there's nothing really out of place. There's no hair out of place. There's no, uh, you know, string on their suit out of place. Everything looks clean. Uh, it's in black and white, which I think helps with the black suits. Everything it just makes everything more stark, and it makes everything more uh, sharp, almost. You know, it makes it seem like it's even uh, uh, like the wavelength or whatever. It's just it's just razor like razor sharp. And the idea that you know this is how you know the this is how the United States and therefore the rest of the world would come to know the Beatles, and that's how they kind of just grabbed our attention. And kind of inflamed our imagination. And I remember what George Harrison talked about. We had so many people watching our appearance on Ed Sullivan that nationally crime went down across the nation. He goes, even the criminals took time to see what the Beatles were up to and get to get to meet the Beatles in a way. And I think no matter what you know incarnation that they've taken afterwards, uh, their solo work, it all comes back to that Ed Sullivan appearance of just you know, four boys on stage and uh, also the presentation, right? Up until then, it was like Elvis and his backing group, Johnny Cash and his backing group. Uh, it was a singer uh, out front and then just the band the back, you know. And John Lennon said that that was a purposeful conception that they had is like, we there's just four of us. It's not Paul in the group. It's not John in the group. It's the four of us. We're uh, the Beatles as a band as a concept and so you get that idea of the four-headed monster that they were so popular and had such uh, sway in the music industry that you know you never wanted to go up against them because they you know 
four sides of the same coin or something like that, right? Like, uh, I think it's ultimately what with chafe and, and kind of bringing derision and stuff. But when they were in sync, when they were together, when they were uh, on the same wavelength, so to speak, you know, there was no one that could touch them. There was no one that could reach that height that the four of them could reach when they were all in unison and all in this perfect harmony. Yeah, I mean, that that is the look that started it all. And a very worthy number one. I mean, it. Yeah, if you were gonna make if you were gonna make wax figures of the Beatles, you would either do it, you would either have them in their Sergeant Pepper suits, or you would have them looking like they did on Ed Sullivan. Because it's so emblazoned in our collective memory. I don't know if we can call it a memory, but truly the epitome of iconic. Hey, I, I think my approach to this list has been much more superficial, if you will. I'm just thinking about, like, what looks cool. So I'm going to go, mine's a little different. My number one um, favorite beetle look, coolest beetle look, um, as I've sort of hinted at earlier, maybe, uh, referencing my failed attempts to emulate it, but um, my number one is John Lennon, the king of cool looks, uh, circa, this was sort of an enduring look for him. Hit, for him, he was sporting this uh, style from late sixty or um, from the White Album, all the way uh, up to the Abbey Road period, I suppose. And of course, I am referencing the the famous long kind of shoulder when he had shoulder length hair parted just perfectly down the middle, combed just so clean-shaven granny glasses. This is how he appears on the um, sort of the, the the grid of four photos from the White Album. This yeah. is how he appears on the rooftop uh, concert in his big fur jacket. This is how he appears in the promotional videos for Hey Jude and Revolution. So specifically, maybe we'll say the look that he's rocking in Hey Jude, where he appears with his long parted hair, his clean shaven face, his iconic glasses. He's got like a lavender shirt on with a black vest over that. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and I didn't notice this before, but like a, like an orange clip on bow tie. And I just think <laughs> that that is John Lennon at the epitome, you know? He's kind of, I mean, he's already probably getting a little lost in drugs at that point. But, you know, you watch it, you watch, look at footage, and he's still, he's still a young man. He's still vital. He's still firing on all cylinders. And he is hitting his creative peak in some ways. And um, it's before he gets, you know, this is the period right before the bushy beard that you mentioned earlier. And I just feel like, you know, one of the reasons that um, people around the world continue to be obsessed with John Lennon is he was just kind of a beautiful guy. He just had this beautiful face, this beautiful hair. And, you know, he just had, he's just, there's no... No one looked quite like him, and no one, few people were ever as cool as he was. And I just feel like this is him at his most beautiful, his most cool, if I can say that. So it gets the um, first place ribbon. <laughs> well, I agree with you. You know, that is, it is, you know, I don't know if you can really top in terms of John Lennon look. Although you started, I started thinking about maybe it's the video for something, right? And there's that. Weird period of John Lennon. He's got the bushy beard, but he's got that like flat brimmed hat, almost like a oh, yeah. shirt, like, the and the black shirt hat. and the and the. I feel it's like maybe one of the last promotional photos the Beatles ever took together. And it's weird too. Yeah, because the last Harrison... photo shoot that that they right that's on the Hey Jude album cover. It's like his hipster Amish look. Right, exactly. But then like George is clean shaven. There's like a weird period where like George is clean shaven for like six months, and then. You get to like a uh, concert for Bangladesh and he's got that beard and he rocks that beard for the rest of the 70s almost. 
but there was a, where he had the beard, George Harris the beard, and then he shaves it for these weird photos where it says like "Don't sit on the grass," and the Beatles are, like sitting on the grass. Like it's almost like it's really sweet when you look at those photos because you know the band is breaking up. You know the tensions are high, and they're they're like done, right? Like they're just over it. But they had just enough to kind of like take these little photos and kind of go back to their roots of just being like four sweet boys that really had you know loved each other and and uh, you know loved their fans and stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. Now, do you have any? Do you have an honorable honorable mention you want to squeeze in there at the end that didn't make the top five? Um, I must. Uh, no, nothing that I feel like. Nothing that I really wrestled over. I think that the ones that I had were were stayed playing. What about you? Well, if you're going to abstain, I will abstain as well. <laughs> we can't be uneven here on the Fab Five. No, no, sir. Well, I love this topic. I hopefully. Hopefully, listener, you loved it as well, and and uh, we've given you some homework to kind of check this out, check out you know Google Photos or look at videos, and uh, and understand you know the uh, where the Beatles were in their lives, and again the effect that it had on uh, on contemporary culture and culture now. Indeed, and I I commend you for uh, making this topic very fun. You once again. Going above and beyond and taking the places I never would have imagined. One of these days, I'm going to take notes. Like, indeed. Well, I'll be looking forward to the theme that you choose for our next episode. Hmm. What shall I devise? Uh, well, we'll see. And when it does happen, you'll be the first to hear about it, listener. I want to thank you so much for listening to another tremendous episode of the Fab Five. This is Atom Danger. Uh, signing off with Beetleette. Beetleette, say goodbye to everyone. Adieu. Oh, French. <laughs> uh, <laughs> once Ooh, again, la, la. yeah, we, we, we. Anyways, uh, well, thank you so much, everybody, and take it easy.